Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Doug Belote. Growing up in Cajun country in South Louisiana, Doug was immersed in the sounds of jazz, rock, funk, R&B, Cajun, Zydeco, Dixieland, gospel, Latin, and the New Orleans second-line rhythms. He studied at the Drummers Collective in New York City, where he studied with Ricky Sebastian and Kim Plainfield, and in his early 20s toured Europe, Japan, and the Caribbean with a variety of New Orleans-based jazz, blues, and funk artists. He has recorded more than 100 albums, and his resume includes work with so many heavyweight artists, including Mike Gordon, Jeff Coffin, Willie Nelson, Sonny Landreth, Cyril and Ivan Neville, Charlie Hunter, John Oates, Shane Terrio, Derek Trucks, Susan Dedeski, and as well as a 2010 performance with Eric Clapton at the Crossroads Festival. Doug currently lives in New Orleans and tours with the 12-time Grammy winner, Jerry Douglas. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45 and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Doug Bloat. Enjoy. Are you in a good spot? Yeah, yeah, I am. I just wanted to make sure I was in a quiet place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. I mean, you're like, I need to find a quiet space. And and not because I've got a house full of toddlers. But... Oh, no, it's just because i got a, a city full of drunk people from Mardi Gras. And <laughs> 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 they're still, like, crawling around the city. So. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> It's Ash Wednesday. 
It's also yeah. Valentine's Day. It's all the it's all the things. It's Hump Day. You know, I don't know. It's all kind of it's it's like Ash Wednesday blues. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of hangovers today. I can tell you that much. <laughs> so, um, did you did you work very much this week? Did you play? Man, I I didn't really work this much uh, this week because of the fact that where my house is located, I'm I'm right in the middle of the parade route, so I can't really get in or out without being in gridlock traffic most of the you know for like the last ten days. So actually, I did one I did one gig where they had a drum set there and everything there, and I just had to walk. So it's like, and I just walked to the French Quarter from, and it was only and I only live about twenty minute walk from the French Quarter, so. Okay. But it's just like, but, you know, just trying to get in the car and go somewhere, it's just it's almost non-existent, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, but, you know, I mean, it was, yeah, I just, uh, I just didn't want to be in all the, the madness too much, you know. Right, right, right. I want to start by um, saying thanks to Jim Riley for connecting us and um, giving yeah. me your name. I had mentioned to a couple people that we were going to be speaking, and they're like, "I've heard of him," or "I know, I know, I know who Doug is," and oh. um, it was it was cool and and. Um, uh, I, 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 I was un- unfortunately, uh, unfortunately not in that camp, uh, uh, but it's been a, a joy to the, do a little bit of digging and listening and, and everything like that. And that's also the joy of this, this endeavor and this podcast is to discover so much. And, um, and again, it, it blows my mind how many wonderful players are out there um and including you so I, I so thank you so much and thanks to jim riley a producer here not the yeah. dr- not the drummer jim riley uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the uh the producer jim riley here in nashville yeah. uh, connecting us um so what's um what's been happening this this year i mean we're only in where it's february it's it's valentine's day uh so it's only february uh this year but what's uh what's this year been what's been happening with you this year what's what what do you have to look forward to well uh Still, I'm still touring with Jerry Douglas, you know, out of Nashville. So yeah. I'm usually in Nashville once, twice a month, and um, and so we're just gearing up. Uh, well, we we got nominated for a Grammy, which we didn't win, but we but it was it was great experience. Um, we were in the instrumental category this year. Okay, and so we we did that, and then um, we started up touring, you know, some one offs in uh, I think in March, and then April, May. June, we got some, in July, we have some, you know, some little slight touring. Mm-hmm. So, which is not, not as busy as last year, which is great because it gives me time to, uh, I'm working on this movie yeah. called uh, Street Beat, uh, Street Beat Drumming, Drumming Below Sea Level. <clears throat> right. And it's based uh, about New Orleans drummers. And uh-huh. I've been working on this movie for about two years and I'm in the final stretch. Okay. You know, before we send it to the editor and stuff. So that's what's good about not really being too busy with Jerry, it's allowing me to move forward on this uh, project. And then, and then, um, other than that, I'm just, uh, you know, playing gigs in new Orleans. And, uh, also, you know, I pretty much do a lot of session work here. I mean, uh, a lot of TV film work and oh, just yeah. all kind of different, yeah, all kind of different things here. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, movies and things still getting filmed here. So, 
luckily I, you know, I get the call to, to do some, you know, some film score type stuff. Or, now you mentioned, um, you were doing some work with, with the TV show Treme. Is that right? I did. I, uh, I played on some, um, soundtrack work for that as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Treme, uh, that, that was, there's a guy here named David Tarkanowski who's a, a great piano player and composer and, and I do a lot of, um, like, you know, you, you, a lot of my drumming, there's a lot of TV work here for a lot of commercials, like, uh, you know, Zatarans or, or um, Popeyes. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> something that's funny because I'll be in a hotel room in, you know, California or New York and stuff, and, and I'll hear those commercials we did. <laughs> they still air a lot. <laughs> it's right. kind of funny. It's yeah, like, I know. You know, and... and uh, yeah, so we do a lot of those, and then it, David was uh, writing some music for uh, for Treme, and you know a lot of like um, little sound bites and things from before they go to commercial. Or mm-hmm. Basically, if they wanted something to sound like, hey, I need this to sound like Professor Longhair, but we can't use Professor mm-hmm. Longhair right, or James right. Booker's music yeah. or Doctor John's music, so mm-hmm. we want you to make something up, you know. So we'll we'll take songs and clips and make them sound like that, and you know. And, so I did a, a bunch of those for, you know, that TV show. And our, our, tech, some, yeah. our, our tech guy, Mike Jackson, uh, does commercial work, uh, writes music for that. And uh, a lot of times the, the client will not be a musician, but they'll say, hey, we're looking for this. But you can't afford to pay for the rights to have that actual song in their commercial. So, so you know, some sort of amalgam or some sort of, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, not amalgam, but, you know, a, a version oh, yeah, yeah. that sounds like that song that makes the listener, you know, think that they're listening to the Doobie Brothers and they're really not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like, they'll, they'll do the, we'll do the same thing with New Orleans music here. Uh-huh. And they would say like, hey, we need it to sound like... um like blah blah blah. So we'll you know we'll, of course we'll change the key yeah. and then play practically the same beat but a little different and mm-hmm. maybe a different tempo to where it almost sounds exactly like it but it's not. But you know that same type of thing. It, they've been doing it for years. And, so you've got to know your history too. So you know when they say we're yeah. looking for this this certain style or from this artist, you, you've got to know what they're talking about. Which I'm sure is yeah, easy yeah. for you, mm-hmm. but um, that goes hand in hand with most uh, full-time session players that I've spoken with, that people reference many styles of music and artists and and eras and genres that you have to be familiar with, you have to be hip with, hip to, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and especially here, you know, it's like I grew up in this in this idiom, you know, whether it's Cajun Zotico or Second Line or New Orleans Funk, you know. Yeah. And basically, we just, um, yeah, that you know, like if they say, hey, I need to sound like Zigaboo, well, you know, it's like usually George Porter's on bass on the sessions anyway, so it's like, you know, so basically I'll just I'll just reference Zig, you know, like uh, I, I've been on Zig since I was a kid, so I've been listening to him, yeah. you know, since I was practically started, so I kind of got the gist of his drumming as a kid, you know, and then they say like, Hey, I want this to sound like sissy strut, but you know, but it's not going to be sissy strut. All right. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just basically have Zig in my mind or a lot of stuff will be like Earl Palmer or, or, yeah. you know, Johnny Vodakovich or mm-hmm. whoever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They, so, um, you know, so we just make it sound like that, you know? Uh, and I, I want to dig into 
this breadth of knowledge that you have about New Orleans, uh, it kind of guide us, including me, through through a lot of this. But I want to hang back just for a minute on the Jerry Douglas thing. What mm-hmm. kind of gig is that for you? So a lot of people that don't know Jerry Douglas is kind of a, a Nashville staple. Worked with uh, Allison Krauss, Union Station. Um, he, he's uh, Dobro. Yeah, it's it's a dobro. Uh-huh. Basically, he's uh basically he's the best on his instrument. Yeah, you know he's like Bela Fleck, Sam Bush, you know those kind of mm-hmm. people. They all mm-hmm. and you know they're all best friends. So it, it's it's a funny story because I mean how I got, you know Jerry's like like James Taylor would say he's the the Muhammad Ali of the dobro, and, <laughs> and I, I'll be honest with you, man. What got me to Nashville and how I met Jerry was it's a weird story because. When Katrina happened here, yeah. you know, my house didn't flood. I had, we had, you know, wind damage and stuff, but luckily I didn't flood. Okay. But I came back and it was just so, it was so depressing yeah. that I, I had to leave. I just had to go somewhere. So I was like, I said, man, I'm just going to go to LA or New York and just hang for a bit. And then, but I had, I knew two people in Nashville and, and the only two people I really knew was Jeff Coffin, a sax player with whom I toured with yeah. and, and this uh, guitar player named Pat Bergeson. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I, I was just talking to him, Pat Bergson said, you know, Pat and Jeff was, told me, he's like, man, just get out of here and come hang here for a little bit. You know, so all right. So I went and, and um, you know, I just showed up in Nashville and I remember it was freezing cold. I showed up like, I tried to, I tried to hang in New Orleans, but it was so depressing at the time. I had to get out, you know, it's like, so I, yeah, I went, I went to Nashville and, and then I ended up hooking up with this guy named Jack Pearson. Yep. And then Pat Bergeson, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the, I mean, the, the first week I got there, I, I hung out with Jack Pearson. I went to his house and he asked me to be on his record. So that was the first record I did in Nashville was Jack Pearson's record. And, and, uh, we had a connection, man. Cause he, he, you know, he just, he just wanted some stuff and some funk and, you know, so I got, like with some second line stuff. So we ended up, we ended up doing a record there and, and then there's another guy named Guthrie Trap. He's a guitar player. And, right. And somehow I met him at the Jack Pearson show. And he he called me one day and said, "Hey man, um, because I said, man, you know, it's, things are getting better in New Orleans. I might move back because I, I'll, I'll be honest, with you, I thought I was a trout in a tree in in Nashville. Like I just I didn't I didn't I didn't see. I mean, it was a great it's a great town. I I was like, man, I just don't see my personality here. You know, it's like, and um. Uh, and I, and I told Gus, I said, yeah, I'm probably going to go back to New Orleans. He goes, oh, man, I'll go back. Uh, uh, it sucks. You, you know. And then one day he called me. The next morning, it was weird. He called me. And I was actually packing up my car to leave. And he called me. I said, hey, man, Jerry Jerry Douglas is looking for a drummer, man. Come come audition for him. Yeah. Well, it, which is weird because Jerry had his drummer at the time, and he had to quit. It was Allison Krause's drummer at the time. His name was, uh, I forgot it. Uh, Larry Andy Matarak or something. And he, he says, um, he says, yeah, man, I, he had to quit before some other reasons. And, and it was like, so I showed up at Jerry's house with my drums, you know, cause Guffy said, yeah, come audition. I mean, I'd never even heard of Jerry Douglas at all. I'd never, I'd never even seen a dobro cause you just don't see bluegrass. Yeah. So I showed up at Jerry's house and I, for some reason I thought it was Jerry Reed. I thought I was going to audition for Jerry Reed and I love Jerry Reed's music. And I love Smokey and the Bandit. So I showed up at Jerry's house thinking it's Jerry Reed. Yeah. And I, I go right to his studio upstairs and <clears throat> and he wasn't even expecting me to 
be there. And he goes, Hey, how you doing? Who are you? I said, Hey man, I'm Doug. Yeah. I'm here to audition. You know, it's like, and he goes, Oh, you know, Jerry's a nice guy, man. And of course he's, I won't say like, well, wait, what? You know, it's like, so he's like, okay. And he kind of starts laughing. And I said, yeah, man, by the way, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of smoking the bandit. And, <laughs> and I said, uh, I know a lot of your songs, man. I love Eastbound and Down and, and Amos Moses. So yeah, man. And he's just kind of looking at me. He's laughing and he's like, okay, yeah, man. So we get up there and, and, and basically this drummer he had, had pretty much, you know, skipped out on him. So I go to his house and we just start playing and, um, we're just jamming. And then, it, um, and it's crazy because the, the bass player was Todd Parks who plays at Sam Bush and Guthrie Trap. They had both recommended me. Okay. And then I show up and I say, Hey, let's play Amos Moses. And he's, and Jerry's still kind of just like laughing every time I say it. And then, and something come to find out, we just start jamming on some jazz and, you know, funk and rock stuff. And we're not doing anything bluegrass whatsoever because I still didn't know who the hell Jerry Douglas was. <laughs> and I'm at his house. Yeah. And then, and then the weird thing is, after about a 30, 40 minutes of jamming, he stops and goes, man, let me talk to you outside for a second. So I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess it didn't work out. You know, cool, whatever. I'll just tell him thanks and go home, finish packing and head back to New Orleans. And we're sitting on his swing outside and he's just talking and he says, hey, man, um, man, I'd love to have you in the band. The gig's yours if you want it. I was like, oh, yeah, cool, man. So he gives me the calendar. And right in there, he just gives me the, there's like a whole, like a year and a half worth of work. It was crazy. And so I'm still thinking, I just see, I see, you know, Jerry Douglas tour, blah, blah, blah. But I'm still thinking it's Jerry Reed for some reason. <laughs> so I, I go, have the gig. I go back. I was living with Pat Bergeson. And he says, uh, I told Pat, I said, yeah, man. I said, I got the gig with Jerry Reed. And Pat's like, huh? You know, because Pat played with Jerry and Chet Atkins. And, right, right. And he goes, nah, there's no way. He goes, he's not doing well. I said, oh, man, he looked great. He goes, yeah, I saw Jerry in the saw Jerry in the hospital last week. He wasn't really doing well. And I said, no, man, he looked great, man. He plays his guitar. He sits it on his lap and he plays his butt off, man. It's like it's killer stuff. And he goes, and Pat's just kind of looking at him like, I said, yeah, man, look all this work he has. And, and I give the schedule to Pat and Pat goes, Oh, you playing with Jerry Douglas? Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, who did I take a gig with? Right, right. And at that time, I didn't, I didn't even have a computer because my computer had flooded at my girlfriend's house when in Katrina and my drums and stuff. So I was like, so basically, I go to the public library in Green Hills and I, I, I I'm typing in Jerry Douglas' name and I'm like, okay, this guy did a lot of stuff. I, man, I, I never heard of this guy. I was like, so I, 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 I literally call him. I call him and, and I call Jerry at night. And I said, Hey man, look, I said, thanks for the gig. I said, man, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know who I took a gig with. And I never heard of your name. I said, I, I never heard of you. <laughs> I said, I really dig yourself, but I never heard of you, man. So yeah. I'm, I'm sorry if I don't, I said, I, I don't want to, I don't know how to approach your gig or whatever. I said, I'm sorry. I never heard of you, man. Yeah. And he goes, and he just starts laughing. He goes, perfect. Just right. bring your personality to my gig. Exactly. I said, okay. And he, and basically, I had um, I had like ten days, I think it was, to to memorize because he didn't, you know, Jerry doesn't read or write charts or anything. So I had I had to memorize everything, and his stuff's pretty intricate. It's it's um, you know, it's basically he's basically a bluegrass artist, mm -hmm. but man, the stuff we do is kind of it's 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 more in like the jazz fusion, you know, yeah. realm. Yeah, 
And uh, there's a lot of odd meter. There's a lot of styles. I mean, you may play a train beat for this song, but the next song is going to be in seven and five. And, and it's like, you know, it's something like Chick Corea ish or Bela Fleck ish, you know, because like some of the songs we do that he co wrote with Bela Fleck or Edgar Meyer or Sam Bush or, you know, so that's kind of all that happened. So that kept me in Nashville, you know, um, and, and that's. That's how the whole Jerry thing happened. And basically, he wouldn't let me listen or play like any other drummer. Because I told him, I said, can I play with sticks? He goes, man, do whatever you want. Just bring your personality to it. Yeah. So, I mean, technically, yeah, technically, I mean, there were some songs where like, uh, that some guys would play train beats on that I would play more of a New Orleans type second line or, or like mix in a New Orleans groove with Brazil, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of how it all. So there, there's about three records I did with Jerry where you know, basically I just, I just you know he would show me a song and we we just come up with it and and you know play it. That's great. But I, but he gets me. I got to say though, man, for even for a Nashville gig, he he never tells me what, when, or how to play the gig. Never. Yeah. He's yeah. never he never turned around to me and and said, don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. If he'll do it, he'll do it in a subtle way. He turn around and goes, hey, on that B section, yeah, you know, feel free to to, to play more. It's like, really? You know, <laughs> and, and, and that was, it was kind of crazy because that's, that's how I was almost overplaying on the gig. And then after we had this band, man, it started really gelling. And then we went out, um, on the road opening for Paul Simon for three months. And oh, that's how nice. I met Steve Gadd, oh, you know, glorious. it's like, yeah. 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 So I got to hang with Steve Gadd like every day for three months and oh. eat with him and wake up and go to Starbucks with him or whatever. You know, we, and the funny thing is we never talked about drumming hardly ever, <laughs> except when he wanted to talk about New Orleans gumbo or, or New yeah. Orleans drumming. And it was kind of weird because I, I got to sit there with him like, every night and just watch him play and he would sit side stage and watch me play and then he'd say well, what's that thing you were doing on that first tune show me that and yeah and i would show him and he would you know it's like weird i'm just kind of like showing him and like oh, i don't feel right doing this you know but but he's 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 one of the nicest guys in the world and and you know it's like it, everything in playing with jerry and moving to nashville really moved forward in a, in a positive way because basically my drums and all the stuff that was at my girlfriend's house flooded at the time. Right. So I had a, I had a crappy kit, crack cymbals. And, and, um, there was, there was a guy named David Northup in Nashville. I don't know if you know him. He's been on the podcast. Dave. Yeah. Oh, he, he, Dave, he's yeah. amazing. He's a great guy. Super great. And man, one, yeah, one thing that guy did, man, when I showed up in Nashville, I had crack cymbals and I never forget. He, he came sit in, we were doing this gig together like in a, with this country guy, I forgot what it was. It was like some little bar gig. Mm-hmm. And he saw my symbols, man. And he actually gave me, he gave me some Zildjian symbols. And he goes, here, man, take these. Yeah. Take these. <laughs> you know, he was really yeah. cool. Yeah. He, and uh, so, yeah, so awesome. he, he did that. And then I went on tour and then Steve saw my, my crack symbols and my crappy drum set. And he right then and there called Zildjian and Yamaha and got me with uh, those companies. That's awesome, and um, I've been I've been with him ever since, you know, and, and um, that's kind of how all the Jerry thing just that's that's amazing. It, it just kind of happened for a reason, you know. They say uh, because in every gig I did in Nashville had really nothing to do with 
country, even though I love country music, my dad was a mm-hmm. country bass player in, in Louisiana. Yeah. But it's like I would, you know, I'd play with Jack Pearson, and then I'd play yeah. with uh, Jeff Coffin, and I was playing with Jerry, and I was also playing with Larry Carlton, and yeah. then, and then, um, yeah, and just you know, man, things just started snowballing. So when somebody wanted to use me, it was because they needed some type of New Orleans funk or, yep. you know, so Southern. Greece, I guess. Sure. Well, I mean, that's and that's great to hear. I mean, and that's something that I think people need to know, or maybe they don't need to know, because Nashville is exploding uh, with people moving here for a variety of reasons. Uh, the last five years, yep. it's really grown, and so there's times that I'm stuck in traffic that I'm like, oh, please go home. But I was there too, you know, 16, 17 years ago, I was one of those people that was moving here looking for something. Um, I found a lot of work in country music myself, but um, I there is so much else going on uh, here. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, it's so it's kind of ironic because there's a great uh, YouTube video of you online, and they're interviewing you, and you bring up that that story of auditioning for Jerry Douglas and thinking it was Jerry Reed. I love that. It's so funny. Oh. And then ironically, and I know Jerry Douglas from Allison Krauss and the last one of the last Allison Krauss tours uh the drummer that she used was Jerry Rowe. Uh Jerry Yeah, Jerry, I know Jerry. Yeah, yeah. He, that's actually Jerry's grandson. It, it, Jerry Rowe is Jerry Reed's grandson. <laughs> so Yeah, that's actually that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. I, I always like to say Nashville is like an incestuous group of musicians. You know, everybody knows each other in one way or another. If they're not in your circle, your circle somehow bumps up or intersects with someone else's circle. Um, but Jerry oh, was totally, yeah. Jerry was. Uh, I've known Jerry for years since I moved to town. He's he's doing great. But he was on the podcast as well uh, early on in, in 2015. Um, but. Uh, but man, that's uh, and that's so great. And to have your playing and your influence in this town is is just, I, I love it. It's really great. Um, I I want to jump off of you your story about hanging with Gad and him asking you about New Orleans, asking you about grooves, asking you about these things, because. I I kind of fall into this camp where well, first of all I have to say. The more you study something, the more you try and learn about something, the more you realize the things that you don't know. And New Orleans and New Orleans drumming is one of those things for me. I'm embarrassed to say there's just many facets of of New Orleans, the music scene, the history, and the impact on American drumming. I'm just not as knowledgeable as I should be, and I call myself a drummer. Um, and Zach Albetta, my co-host, is a little bit more hip to many things and many players. And I know, I mean, for all my life, I've heard of Johnny Vodakovich, Herlin Riley, uh-huh. Earl Palmer. You know, it's like I know who these yeah. people are. For any listeners that are kind of in that same camp with me, is there a way that you can break it down for us and describe some of these, uh, the important role that uh, New Orleans plays and has played in the development of American music? First of all, like, you have Congo Square, which is located in New Orleans. Uh, that's where pretty much the like like slaves from Africa when they were when they had entered the United States really came in through New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Well, the ones that came in through New Orleans 
brought drums with them, and Congo Square was a place they can play every Sunday. This is way back. They would actually communicate. So, I mean, it says there's definitely a vibe here, first of all, because of that. Uh, going, you know, fast-forwarding, fast-forward a lot of years. And right. a guy like Earl Palmer, I mean, if you, if you, even though Earl Palmer was playing on hit records here, regional records, when he went to Los Angeles and became in the, the session scene in the wrecking crew, he he was playing on a bunch of hit records, so it's like really he's one of the first, if not the first, rock and roll drummer, in, in my opinion. And I'm not saying that just being biased because I'm from here, but I mean, like I just listen to stories with like Dr. John when I tour with Dr. John every now and then. He would tell me about you know I, there's a documentary uh, by Denny Tedesco called The Wrecking Crew, which is amazing. I saw it four times. Yeah, and 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 I was I was just watching it. And, and it always mentioned, somebody would mention Mac Rabinett, you know, which is Dr. John. And I asked Dr. John about it, you know, and he has a whole story about being the young man in the wrecking crew. And he would tell me about Earl Palmer. He's like, yeah, man. He goes, he was the first rock and roll drummer. I don't care what anybody says. Really? He's like, he's like, yeah, he played on, you know, Little Richard and Fast Domino and all that stuff before he was hit playing on the, you know, the, the same stuff Hal Blaine was playing on. But, but he had a big role he took he he would take the new orleans thing and and mix it with the the rock and roll thing where people were doing back in la and the wrecking crew and you know making hit records so he was kind of like one of the first drummers of playing rock and roll music you know yeah. rock you know like and, and so i mean he's from here so it's kind of has a direct um you know i guess i a direct pipeline to it, you know. He, he he's he's like an ambassador that took it to the mainstream, or, or or just even just as a resident and somebody that grew up there. Um, I mean, I don't yeah. know if you're going to necessarily hear a strong New Orleans style uh, in the in the many of the tracks that that he was he was on that were famous, but I know what you're right. saying. Uh, you know, and, well, I'm and, saying that beat that beat he plays, and even I, I think he was doing it before how. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blaine only because like I listen to how how Blaine's podcast and how you know says that he owes a lot to Earl for getting him into the scene and I even talked to Jim Kellner and Jim Kellner said the same thing once about Earl Palmer and so it's like you know I, I just I mean even though if it's like a or whatever beat it could be a shuffle or whatever the rock and roll beat quote unquote was back in the day he was doing that here in New Orleans, you know, five, 10 years prior to, to playing on those hits in, in LA, you know, back in the sixties and or whatnot. But I mean, I just, say he's, I, I just say, I think he's one of the creators of rock and roll drumming, if you will. Sure. You know, um, but he was from here and he never, never put like a actual second line or New Orleans street beat, but there's hints of it, you know, okay. You, you'll hear Earl play, play, you know, play some stuff where if somebody's doing like a, something on the hi-hat and the snare drum, he might do it on the snare with some roughs or something, but it's the same beat. Uh-huh. And, um, I don't know. It's just, that's, that's kind of what I hear. And that's what, what stories of like what Keltner told me and Dr. John told me, you know, so I'm, that's why I think it's a direct, you know, avenue from Earl Palmer straight to rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, do you know, uh, Reggie Jackson, he, uh, the drummer Reggie? Reggie, Reggie, he played with Dr. John um, for about two years. Uh, he's from my hometown, Columbus, Ohio. 
Um, oh, oh, yeah. This was like uh, about like uh, five years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually uh, I met him through uh, Shane Cario. Yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah, I do. I don't know him, but I, I did meet him, and because yeah. uh, Sarah Morrow, the trombone player, she yeah. put a whole yeah, and she put a whole band behind him from Ohio, and that that's how I met. Man, you know that guy's a great drummer, man. He is uh, super great. Yeah, he's, he's killer, man. He, that whole band, those, all those guys are really nice, and um, yeah, because when I did the gig, uh, the organ player. His name was Bobby. I can't remember. Uh, he was from also Ohio as well. Oh man, um, I'm trying to remember who uh, who who, yeah. who it was. But I I used to play with Sarah uh, Sarah Morrow up up there, and yeah, I mean it, it's I think that's a kind of a testament to like the many pockets around the country where there's just killer musicians in, in unexpected places. I mean, not necessarily. It wouldn't be a surprise in a in a larger city like Columbus, but it makes me proud, and uh, it's it's nice yeah, to hear that they were. Cool. You know, it's the Ohio nice, the Midwest nice. People. People. <laughs> That's yeah, good. yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, definitely, definitely. Just kind of an offshoot. Yeah. Well, I, I, so uh, jump into your documentary. Um, I, 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 I'm excited about this, and I'm excited about the opportunity to dig in more and to learn more. So, first of all, what what was the motivation behind it? Well. Um, there's a producer that moved here from Los Angeles, uh, Donnie Markowitz, who does a lot of, you know, commercials like Pete, you know, that I work with. Mm-hmm. And we had both talked about, first of all, I had this idea way back in the day. And I remember about three of these drummers that I wish were still around. Herman Ernest, who played with Dr. John for more than 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. and played with all kinds of people. Herman Ernest was one of the most baddest pocket drummers from New Orleans. So him and this guy, Bunchy Johnson. Bunchy's not really a household name, but he's as New Orleans as it gets. Mm. And he, all these guys played on a lot of New Orleans R&B hits and just had that thing. Well, you know, they, they passed away about five, six years ago. And I was like, man, I wish I had, you know, like these guys are really instrumental in helping me out in this town. I wish, um, you know, and then like, you know, one after another, just one might have a heart attack. Or So I remember Donnie had brought the idea up to me, and I was like, man, I had this idea before. So we we teamed up with uh, Donnie, his director, and um, this guy, Jason. He has the camera crew, and then also Ray Hart, who does our, helps do our writing. And, and you know, uh, Ray Hart is uh, Mickey Hart's daughter from the Grateful Dead. She lives here in town. That's a, oh, that's cool. So we, yeah. So we, so it's like it's four it's four four different heads put together, and and basically Donnie wanted to do the film because I told Donnie a story about when I was thirteen, I was practicing my drums in my house, and my dad was a bass player. Mm-hmm. He came ran in the room while I was practicing. It was a Friday afternoon. I'll never forget. He said, "Quick, come here. I want to I want to show you the best drummer in the world that I've ever heard." I was like, you know, I'm like, who, who who's that? He goes, I, I don't know. Just hurry up and jump in the truck. I jumped in a truck like five minutes down the road. There was this place called Grand uh, uh, Downtown Alive. It's a, a festival every Friday, every Friday afternoon from like five to eight. They'll have a band, you know, from local band from New Orleans or Lafayette play. Well, I got there and I, we we pull up and I see this drummer and his legs cocked back and he's like 
he looks like a praying mantis. He's playing some drums, and it's a band from New Orleans, and it was Johnny Vidakovich, and yeah. you know, and he, he was it was it was it was a type of drumming that I've never seen in my life, and like close up, you know. Uh, so I'm just sitting there, and I, I kind of understood it, believe it or not, as a young. I felt it, you know. I was like, man, this is mm-hmm. this is a weird dude, but man, it's making a lot of sense. And he was playing with this guy named John Clary at the time. John was John was probably in his twenties, and I and um and his bass player as well, uh, George French, uh, who's a a legendary bass player here from New Orleans. Uh, is he, uh, is, he related actually, to, uh, is he related to yeah, Gerald? That's Gerald French's. Yeah, that's Gerald's dad. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So, so I saw that, and I never forget. My dad took me backstage to meet. You know, it's like it was basically on this like flatbed trailer kind of thing. You know, it was it was. I guess as they say in Nashville, it was pretty pulled out. You know, it's just, it was like a it's pretty country as a brown egg type of thing. You know, like, <laughs> country as a brown egg. Like yeah, I was in Lafayette. You know, so it was like at a concert. So I met Johnny Vidalkovich, and and then I remember uh, I started asking around and when I got older and started getting into high school my band director was from uh New Orleans and he he hit me to some records with Johnny so so wait a minute so where, basically where, the documentaries from hey, that you hey know? hey Doug where were you living at this time I'm sorry oh I was living in Lafayette yeah I was oh. I was actually born in Lafayette Louisiana okay which is like exactly about an hour and 45 minutes from work from New Orleans gotcha gotcha and, I, but I my dad would part. take me here mm-hmm. yeah my dad was taking me here like a lot, you know, to see drummers and see musicians. Okay. And, uh, you know, because basically everybody from here was playing in Lafayette as well, but but uh, that's that's how I kind of got the bug, you know. So it, it just felt natural. I grew up on New Orleans music, and yeah. and then, yeah, so that's basically what my documentary's about. So I interviewed about 20, 20, 20 drummers from here that were that I grew up listening to that were all of my my New Orleans drum idols mm-hmm. and which became my peers. Yeah. So each one of these guys have 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 not only been idols, but they once I got into town they and grew up and they've been knowing me since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And watching me grow, they we became peers and they've all recommended me to, you know, mm-hmm. tours or something. So basically, uh Johnny Vidakovich, Zigaboo, um uh, man, it's like so many drummers from here, man. Just like I know, you know, list goes on, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah. So it's basically about me moving here and and having, you know, they were my idols, and now they're my peers, and and it's it's such a cool style, you know. And, and um, you know, I got everybody: Stanton Moore, Gerald French, uh, Russell Baptiste, who's like, and if you, Russell Baptiste is like. For people that don't know, it's like taking Zigaboo and mixing in Tony Williams and Billy Cobb. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, he, he's he's unbelievable, man. It's That's like the stuff he was doing. It's I mean, there's a lot of everybody's plays different here. You know, so that basically that's what the documentary is about. It's about that and okay and um yeah. And I got to point out. I mean, I know you said earlier that you felt weird at not knowing. Like, I mean, a lot of people around the world don't know. 
as in depth about New Orleans music, but well, I, I, I mean, mean I, I have to, I have to, I have to preface this <laughs> with well, first of all, I, I mean, I, we practice the way a, 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 a professional like the way a doctor practices medicine as a musician mm-hmm. this is a lifelong pursuit we're always studying to learn and get better and it's and I, I it was stressed to me at an early age that know your history know the drummers know these musicians and uh i mean i wear my kids and my friends out with uh with with what seems like useless trivia but it's like it's so important to me to know history and all facets of music but again i realize there's so much to know and and i forget and as a drummer and the influence of of new orleans music and drumming is so 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 important to uh, american culture and it's like jazz it's not it's so important to non-americans to such a degree that it's almost embarrassing you know you go to asia yeah. and uh i mean there's a great so I have to say that there's a, a, a Zach, my co-host, did a great interview with Gerald French, and Gerald uh-huh. does a lot of touring in Japan and Asia, and just the uh, just the craving for knowledge of New Orleans oh, traditional music, it, yeah. right? And, yeah, but what, what I wanted to say was yeah. that what you were saying about like um, there's there's a style here, and I grew up in it, so it's, it's kind of innate, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Like I, I just it's in my bloodline. Cajun, Zotico, and, and New Orleans music is just, it just comes natural. Right. But what my dad, when I was a kid, what my dad made me study, believe it or not, was Nashville session drummers. Mm. And we would watch Nashville shows. And so when um, <clears throat> I, would, I would study Nashville studio drummers since I was a kid because my dad would make me listen to like Eddie Bears and he'd make me listen to you know, Paul Lyme or Lonnie Wilson and yep. and all these guys and, and who I still those guys to me are as, as big idols as, as like Johnny the Dogman. Mm-hmm. But but guys here in New Orleans, the drummers here in New Orleans and, and 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 people might not believe this, but and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the drummers here in New Orleans cannot play like guys in Nashville. And it's it's that's a reason I get a lot of studio calls here is because I'm fast only because I been listening to that type of stuff since I was a kid. And when I got to Nashville, you know, guys like Shannon Forrest and, um, Greg Morrow mm-hmm. and, um, Harry Stinson and, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and John Gardner would let me, they would let me go watch them play a session mm-hmm. and Chad Cromwell, you know, it's like mm-hmm. they, they would let me go in the studio and watch them. And I got it quick. You know, I, I understood. I said, okay, I understand this Nashville number chart system now. Yeah. Yep. I understand how to write a fast chart. I can, you know, it's like it's about playing with a click track. It's about playing. It's it's almost like it's it's almost like you have in a New Orleans drum. Like believe it or not, I I give a lot of I don't really teach lessons, but there's a lot of guys in this town saying, "Man, how did you how do you learn a song so fast in the studio?" It's like, well, this is what I learned in Nashville, yeah. and I basically show them the the system, and they're like, "Wow!" It's like, yeah, exactly. And it, it drives me crazy that people when I do sessions here for certain people and they start writing out charts like like 10 pages with with repeats and all this stuff i'm like man there's an easier way of doing this yeah. chart for this singer songwriter if, yeah. if and, and i want to buy one of those books that whoever 
it's Fork Drum Closet, the guy that wrote the book on uh, well, G- you Jim know, Riley, you're right. There's a couple. Uh, Jim Riley wrote a great book. The drummer Jim Riley wrote a book on the number yeah, system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Lawrence uh, wrote a book on it. Um, there's a girl there too. There's a lady drummer. Uh, I forgot. I met her on the road. Mm-hmm. She wrote a book too about. She actually, it's funny because, like, you know, she says, "Let me, let me see your charts." So I was like, "All right." Yeah. So basically, basically, I, I uh, you know, I, I can't if, if I'm not by a piano, I can't really hear the chord. I can hear the chord, but I can't tell you what it is unless I'm like if it's a one four five. Uh-huh. I kind of have to be by a piano just to kind of. Uh-huh. My my theory sucks, but but I can still write, you know, a drum chart. Yeah. And make it look like a, you know, even if you're using ones each measure. I think uh, I forgot which drummer in Nashville showed me that. Yeah. I was like, wow. He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, unless you like Shannon Forrest or something. I mean, that guy can, you know, he 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 can. He's, he, he's a like he's a producer, man. He's he's a yeah. That yeah. guy, I mean, he's, he's the sick. best studio drummer to me in the world. Is him. I mean, that's my well, opinion. But yeah, he's you know. he's one of my idols for sure, and I still haven't been able to get him on the show. But a lot of those guys you mentioned have been like Eddie <laughs> and uh, Greg Morrow. And and Chad Cromwell, and it was such an honor to to have them to dig in. But Nashville has always been about speed. It has, I mean, from yeah. the recording sessions, the machine. It yeah. is, it is, and and that's the blessing and the curse about this town, is that it's just about you know time is money, and money is the it's the bottom line for this. I say it's the music business town, more more mm-hmm. so, um, and I can. And I understand what you're saying about, you know, musicians in New Orleans, because it is not that. It is about art and culture and the marriage of the two right. and music. Yeah, and it's like, you know, if your session, like, start, start a uh, recording session here at 10 a.m., man, people are like, what? Like, what? Like, man, they get, you know, they have to go get a pole bar first, or they got to get a beer, you know, it's like, they straight to the studio. If it, I mean, if it starts at 10, they got to start showing up at... Ten forty-five and eleven, and they got it like you know, freaking po' boys and rib and gumbo with them in a, a six-pack. It's like, and then it's like, and then you get there, and they're like, you know, it's like I, 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 I mean, it's like, I'm not, I'm not talking bad about it, but like, cause you know, if you if you get the right, if you have the right song to record, and you come yeah. here, it's gonna it's gonna make magic. And I've done that with Jerry. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people from around the world we've right. done that, but. Right. Well, yeah, no, being in Nashville, man, I gotta say it's 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 so professional that I try to I try to. You know, intertwine both of them, you know, if you will. I think it's important to realize that there is a level of professionalism that uh, and speed that you have to be prepared for in a town like Nashville. But I also think that it is just as professional to go into an environment when you're the hired gun, you, you're you're coming in to, to provide a service. But if the vibe is more laid back, don't freak out. Um, I've worked mm-hmm. with engineers, you know, you get there, you know, it's, it's more of a, uh, you know, you're doing an indie album project or something like that. And, and people come to Nashville and they just, they want to hang out with you. They want to, you know, it's yeah. like, let's do a couple of songs, let's talk, you know, whatever. And then, uh, let's break for lunch. Let's take a two hour lunch. And it's like, you're not. It, that's complete opposite of you know doing a master session or doing demos or things like that. We were trying to get you know five songs in three hours. Uh, it's yeah. not that. It's not the machine. So you have to be able to adjust. And, and I mean, unless you're under a time restraint, or whatever. I mean, people right, know that right, ahead of time. Of but but yeah, I can imagine coming to a different town and and just it, it being about finding the vibe because I think 
many of our favorite records were recorded that way. They weren't spit yeah. out like machines, but um, when the any uh, is there a date or a, a, on this documentary any ideas when you might be done with it or ready to go? Man, I'm I'm not sure. I got actually asked the director about that because he's trying to get it into the film festivals first okay. before like putting it on um, Netflix and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I got to do. I'm interviewing. Um, <clears throat> Cyril Neville from the Neville Brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm interviewing him. I think next week, and also there's a an amazing jazz drummer from here named Adonis Rose. Okay, who he's also and Adonis is like, man, this guy is he'll scare you. He's we're the same age, and part of the thing about this, it was when, me, when I moved here, I saw him play with like, you know, Wynton Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, like as a teenager, and it was scary. Jeez. So basically, I gotta get them two guys, and then, uh, and then, uh, and, and a couple more people, and then there's a couple. Uh, I got you know Steve Gads on the uh, you know doing interviews about. He's also talking about, you know, to one of the guys, and there's a few of the guys in the video that he been known, and, um, and there's a couple more special guests. I won't say yet, but if 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 it happens, they they they've confirmed, but in L.A. So I mean, I gotta go get you know, um, them. And then, you know, the, the editor's already starting to put the, uh, documentary together and, and then, um, then the storyline and all that kind of okay. stuff, you know? So, okay. I mean, it's, uh, so, yeah. it, so people are going to be able to find it on Netflix or is it, 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 are you sure? Or I mean, of where people can find it? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, we're, that's our, that's our, you know, we're trying to put it, you know, on that kind of, that kind of thing. I mean, first of all, he wants to, Director wants to put in some a few film festivals and and then um, you know eventually put on like Netflix or whatever yeah. people go to, to you know search for it or whatever. Okay. So I mean I mean basically I don't know exactly what yet, but I mean I'll definitely let you know let you know okay. as soon as I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. We'll keep up with it, and and certainly a lot of past guests will give them update, uh, give uh, everyone updates with with what's happening. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So your dad was a bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, you discussed a lot of that and the influence of that. Did you have any teachers when you were young? We decided being in band class, and then I just I, my dad would just take me to see drummers, and and then you know those DCI uh, VHS tapes used to come out back in the early nineties, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, basically, I was getting into jazz in, in high school, and so I, you know, when I was in high school, uh, from on my birthday. I remember my I asked my dad to buy me the Peter Erskine uh videotape, you know, the it was I think it was called Everything is Timekeeping. Yep. 
Peter was one of my favorite drummers. When I started kind of hearing jazz, I heard this guy, and I'm like, man, what is this? We'd sit in my room. Me and my brother was nabbing at the bass, and we'd sit in the room listening to Weather Report, and I didn't mm-hmm. get it, but I, I liked it. And I'm like, man. I never forget my dad coming in the room, like storming in the room one day, and he's like, you hear that? That's music. Who's that? Who's that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, who's the MC? He's looking at the crowd like, Peter Erskine. Peter Erskine, or, he, you know, of course, we mispronounce everything. He's like, he goes, man, that guy, that's a drummer right there. And I was like, all right. <clears throat> so I, so we found the video, and I remember getting the VHS tape, and I was in high school, and I watched this sucker, like, a lot, you know. And I learned a lot from that. And then, then um, I never really had a private teacher until I got to, um, once once I got to college, I still didn't have a drum set teacher. And, and um, I, got, I, I did about one year in college, and, and then I, I discovered this guy, Ricky Sebastian, who's one of my favorite drummers. He's a drummer from here who's also in my um, documentary. Ricky Sebastian was living in New York, and I had no idea he was from here. And I heard him on a John Schofield bootleg tape. He was the drummer in John Schofield's band before Dennis Chambers. Okay, wow. So I heard all that all that stuff, that cool fusion stuff you heard Dennis do. Ricky was doing that before Dennis, and I got a bootleg tape of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who's this guy? And I researched it, and I found out he taught at Drummers Collective. So one day I just, I sold my drums, my truck. I sold everything I owned and moved to New York to go study with Ricky Sebastian back in 1995 or six. I can't hey, remember. Hey, so, so hold on. You, you, we're, we're talking like pre-internet here. You found yeah, yeah. out who was on that demo. <laughs> You're like, I got to well, know. Well, yeah, well, what happened was this guy... I was into Johnny Vidakovich and this guy, this, I was playing at church, you know, I started playing at church and I'll never forget this guy. He said, oh yeah, man, I love Johnny Vidakovich. He goes, hey man, have you, have you heard Ricky Sebastian? I was like, no. He goes, yeah, he went, he went to your, he went to the same college you were in and he left and he, man, he's in New York playing with, he goes, check out, he goes, I'm going to burn you this copy of, uh, you know, John Schofield mm-hmm. and I was hearing about John Schofield and I've heard about Dennis Chambers at the time like, yeah, and and um and he made me this tape, and I'm like, wait, this guy's in New York playing this kind of music, and he's from here. He's and it, it freaked me out. So I was like, wow. And I and back in the day, this is pre-internet, so I go to the public library and just research. Yeah, and I, I would literally, I would, I would, you know, read modern drama articles, and you mm-hmm. know, because you read about Dave Wacko and all these guys, and and they they, they tell you, they tell you where they went to school, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm I wasn't a good student in school. But one day, this this uh, <clears throat> this teacher pulled me aside, and she says, "You know what?" She goes, "You know, you, you you're re- you're very talented. You need to start really getting your school thing together because if you're going to have to go to college one day and study this stuff, and you're way behind, you know." So I, I and then she made sense, and I remember going to the public library and I'm reading about all these guys going to school. I'm like, "Oh man, I, I better like really straighten up in school because I, I want to be like these guys." And, so I did. I started straightening up, and I'd go to the public library, and and I would read articles on, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I'd read articles on Dave Weckl or Gary Novak or mm-hmm. or this guy, or that guy, and I said, where do they go to school? And I would I would call that place and and get a brochure of the school and, and apply. And I just applied to everything. Well, going back to Ricky Sebastian, I found out he taught at Drummers Collective in New York City. So yeah. I'm like, yeah. When I saw that, I'm like. Man, I'm a, I'm gonna go here, you know. I was like, so I just, uh, I sent in an audition tape, and 
I got accepted to the advanced program, which was like a six month program or something. And, and then, um, I stayed in New York for a year and I, I, I went and studied with him and, and it was the best decision I ever made in my life was to sell everything and move to New York. And because, you know, you, you, when you're in New York, man, it's like, I was hearing Ricky play and I'd go out and I heard Jeff Payne Watts play and yeah. he would make me nauseous. He would make me nauseous. I, I, <laughs> and then I, and one day I went by the Blue Note in New York and, <clears throat> you know, Vinny Kaliuta, I saw Vinny Kaliuta walk in and I'm like, hey, you Vinny Kaliuta? He's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. And we start talking for a bit and he goes, hey man, you want to come in for the sound check? And he actually let me go in the sound check. It was him. It was Vinny Kaliuta, uh, <clears throat> John Patitucci, Michael Brecker, Jesus. and was, I forgot who was on piano, and I'm just like watching this, and I'm like, man, how can somebody actually play? And he just, how can somebody play this good? I'm like, mm-hmm. it, it freaked me out. And I, I saw him, and I'd watch, uh, you know, I mean, what drummers in New York, man, Brazilian drummers, Cuban, you know, Horacio Negro Hernandez, yeah, yeah, another guy, man. He, yeah. I was in a practice room, and in, in, you know. I was in a practice room in Drummers Collective before this guy was even known. He just moved to New York and mm-hmm. he came in my practice room and started jamming with me on the kit next to me once. And I'm like, man, what is this guy doing? Who is this guy? What What is he playing? I you, nobody's heard that stuff at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, yeah. He's insane. He's that's, insane. But it wasn't Kim Plainfield at Drummers Collective yeah, with he you was, as well. Yeah, he was one of my. He was my main teacher. Was Kim Plainfield, and uh, who. You know, sadly, he passed away. Yeah, uh, I right. just found out. Uh, like a year. The thing about Kim Blainfield, man, his book, best book in the world. Advanced the concept. Best. Is it? Yeah. Advanced? Yes. I, I believe yeah. it or not, man. I was. I, I have coffee every morning, and I still read that book. Like it's. You know, I still work out of that book, and. You know what, man? I it did. it meet. I've had that book for probably fifteen. No, longer than that. Probably twenty years, and mm-hmm. it 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 keeps rising to the surface when I start digging through my books again. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a, crazy, man. I honestly, man, Matt, I I was having coffee this morning. I pulled that book out, just going through a bunch of different sambas and all, and and, and I still just look at that book and and I turn pages and I'm like, man. Kim did that book probably when he was in his late thirties and or you know mid to late thirties and mm-hmm. there's so much information in that book and I'm still barely scratching the surface of it you know it's like I know and and it was great because it was, it was just great it's a great book man and it helped my sight reading a bunch there's that that yeah. those that that segment in the back where it's all the rhythms written out and yep. that I tell people I was like you can get any book in the world but those four or five pages that are like the the sight reading segment in the back. Mm-hmm. Like if you work on that every day, very slowly, your sight reading is going to get, you yeah. know, yeah. a lot better. And uh, Kim, Kim was a man. Kim was a great. Yeah, I think he was. I, I say I think he's the was the best drum teacher in the world. That's awesome. And when I went to Drummers Collective, I showed up late. You know, on New Orleans time, I showed up late the first day of school, <laughs> and he and man, he 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 literally goes, "Hey, what you doing?" You know, like he had that low voice. He goes, What's your name? I said. He goes, "Where are you from?" I said, "New Orleans." He goes, "Well, look, let me tell you something. You little gumbo eating motherfucker." He's like, <laughs> and he 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 tore into me right there. He goes, "I swear to God, you better not ever be late again." You know, he goes, "You can go do that in New Orleans with you know." probably stuck in the bayou and the P-Row and he would tell me something like that. And I was like, <laughs> and he scared me, man. And, and then right then and there, man, he was like, you know, he pulled me aside after. He goes, look, man, I know it's a little hard on you, but he goes, he goes, this is New York. 
He goes, that's all I'm going to tell you. This is New York. We don't put up with that shit. All right? Right. I said, yes, sir. And ever since then, I, you know, he was the guy that told me, you know, about, like, being in New York. is like, always be an hour early. Because mm. if you're, if you're, you know, if you get there 15 minutes before a session or a gig, you're late. You know, that's, he's the one that told me that. And I, it stuck with me, man. And, it, and I still use that to this day. And he was, um... He was he was pretty hard on us, man, and he was it was he was the best drum teacher in the world, I think. I got a question from from my co-host Zach because I said, "Hey, I'm going to be talking. You're more of an expert in, in, in New Orleans and all things uh, New Orleans, but uh, I've, I, anything that would be helpful to know." So he asks this. He has a question for you that he uh-huh. uh, he was wondering if you could define the whole boogaloo thing. Um, oh, okay. Zach says to him the term is like like the way people throw around the word shuffle. It can mean a, a number of things depending on like a, the time period, the region. Um, so he's not even sure if it Boogaloo is, is originated in New Orleans, uh, but he knows that it's part of uh, the drumming there, so uh, or the music there. So could you help answer that question? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you if the actual concept came out of new orleans but mm-hmm. one of the guys when when somebody when i think of a boogaloo beat the one of the guys that i think of the first guy i think of is idris muhammad who's from here right uh who's his, his actual name was leo morris as you know but um uh, i guess he changed and it became idris muhammad but he idris man is like like uh, those early records was uh, Blue Note Records and stuff. He used to, and Billy Higgins too. They used to. It was kind of I think like that crossover from uh, like the bebop jazz thing to funk. You know, it's like I, I can't. I like uh, you know. It might be a, more of a question I'd have to ask like Stanton Moore or something. Okay. But um, but I, I I mean I totally know the music and a lot of the. But Idris Muhammad to me is the is the is the king of that that groove. You know. Um, yeah, it's just you know when I when I play with an organ trio, yeah, I think more of a boogaloo along along the lines of boogaloo. You know, it's like uh, yeah, as far as it, it being started here, I I don't know, but I'm totally you know totally into the you know just that you know I think when I think of boogaloo, I think like the the six, late sixties, you know, like that okay. you know, and that, that's what that's what like. Idris Muhammad had that stuff, man. He, he, even though he was like started out as probably a jazz drummer, he was still an R&B, and he he would do that crossover thing where that where that rod cymbal was still kind of swinging and like, you know. And I got to see Idris play live a bunch, and 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 um, he he to me he's the he's the king of that groove, you know. Okay. There's a. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it definitely has a, definitely a connection or a tie to New Orleans. I never actually did the, um, the straight up research on it. I'm sure you know Stan Moore does a lot, a lot of that kind of research. Okay. So I'm, I'm gonna have to ask him that. Actually, that, that's a good question. But but when I think of Boogaloo, I think of you know Idris Muhammad at okay. the top and Billy Higgins. You know, who's, yeah. Billy Higgins is a West Coast guy, but but Idris Muhammad is definitely a lot of those records, man. You know. 
And, you know, Mike Clark even told me that uh, he was teaching at the Drummers Collective. We would talk about Boogaloo, you know. And he's like, he's just Muhammad, man. He's just Muhammad, you know. And he was, that's, he was, to me, he was the the top drummer doing that stuff. Was Yeah. The other thing was, uh, there's a great uh, YouTube video of you playing in 2010. Uh, you were with Sonny Landreth. Uh, playing at Crossroads, and Clapton was there, and you you got to play with Clapton. Um, and you had mentioned in in the YouTube video uh, just that y- you're you were nervous about that the situation. Um, and Clapton just you know, hey, how's it going? Uh, count it off, let's go. And you're like, I'm playing with freaking Eric Clapton, um, and it's killer. It sounds it sounds amazing, man. And I hear I hear a lot of stuff going on with this. Um, but there's also an intensity where you're you're like you're listening. There's stuff going on. But what was going on that day? What what? How are you feeling about that whole experience? Well, it was, it was yeah. That was first of all that the funny thing about that show that was the Eric Clapton uh, Crossroads 2010. Uh, festival that was i had no idea it was going to be on a dvd to begin with but i was touring with sonny landreth and that was my actually the last gig with sonny landreth and then i was literally going to leave that that gig the next day and and i was starting rehearsals with Derek trucks and susan tedeschi i was in i i went and i was doing like a two-month or three-month stint with that band okay so I ended up playing with Derek and Susan that day because the Allman brothers had to cancel due to the fact that Greg was getting a, a liver transplant, I believe. So, so they asked the Derek and, you know, Tedeschi trucks band, I think it's called to, to do the, um, to take their place and yeah. back up. So I, I backed up like, you know, Derek and Susan lost Lobos and Johnny winner and all kind of people. But it's amazing. Sonny was earlier in the day and the day before, Sonny tells me like, "Hey, Clapton's playing with us." So I, you know, I didn't think nothing of it. So, so we rehearsed. You know, it's like basically we rehearsed, and it was cool. It was like, all right, cool, man. Like, wow, that's just jamming Clapton for. You know, we hung out and ate, and and then the next day, the, you know, we 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 go to play, and there's like sixty thousand people. It's this big stadium, and it's full of it's full of people, and it's like. And, you know, it's one of those stages that turn, you know, it's like one band setting up, with a, you know, it's like turns. And I, I had no idea how many people were going to be out there. And I looked out, and there's like, I suppose like 60,000, 70,000 people or something. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know, and I'm like, man. And not only that, and not only it's like right then and there, like, you know, Clapton's dealing with his pedal, and he turns around to me, he's like, he goes like, yeah, count it off. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm just thinking to myself, man, freaking Eric Clapton just asked me to count off a song in front of, all these people like and he's like you know tune up and he like looks at me i guess he thinks i can't hear him he's like yeah go ahead y'all, y'all count it off count it off yeah so i count off you know i'm using a click track so like i, I get my click station and I, but what, what's even more nervous about the situation is that i got steve gad on the left side staring at me steve steve jordan's right there pino paladino uh tony bronigo i mean it, every drummer that you know Victor and Drizo was there with, you know, everybody's like side staging and I'm just like, Oh man. And it's just, and it was just like, well, you know, this is, this is what, this is what we do. It's time to go. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Count it off. And, yeah. and it, 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 it was, 
you know, I got I got a little I got I got settled in after a while, and it was just like it was just like the whole world watching it, and you know you, you realize like oh man, it's gonna be on a freaking DVD, you know. That's amazing. So I was being a little more reserved, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. well, but it, yeah, it was it was, a, it was definitely a great day, man. And it's um, you know, it's just. Yeah, what a dream, you know. Those festival dates always kind of freak me out because I never know what the monitoring system, uh, what the modern monitoring setup is going to be like. You know, it's, it's so yeah. much of it is just you know plug and play, and and it's like, man, are, am I going to be able to hear anything? Um, you said you were running a click. Did you have a wedge and you were running a click? Or well, yeah, this is what happened. No. you know, Sony Landers didn't play loud, man. I mean, you know, Sony uses two Dumble amps. So I mean that that's he's loud, his bass player's loud. So I don't I don't really need any monitors with them because they're they're usually their guitars are even with my ear, like on the side of me. I have bass mm-hmm. on one side. Yeah. You know, Clapton plays loud. They all play loud. So it's like basically that they were. I had a wedge. I had two wedges. But the only thing that was going through my ears is my click. <laughs> when my in ears is going through my little Yamaha click station at the gotcha. time. Gotcha. Okay. And I can hear everything so loud, and you know, and just made sure that I had monitors so I can hear the. There's a club, you know. I, I just didn't. Yeah, I didn't need like actual everything in my ear. But, but you just but was, with uh, the uh, combination of having the headphones in just kind of controlled everything. You, you can hear the click, but then there's the wedge on top of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And, I, and I, you know, it's funny about that. It was like a Yamaha was supposed to send me a a drum set, or you know, like have a drum set for me because I flew in. And something got messed up where, like, you know, Steve Gass, Steve Jordan, everybody that was in Yamaha had their sets all set up, ready to go. And I get there, and there was no drums. And I'm like, it, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a mis, you know, it was a misunderstanding. They, they forgot. But luckily, I was like, I was there, like, man, what am I gonna do? And I was like, and they had a Pearl guy there, a Pearl, one of the reps from Pearl was there. He goes, hey, I got a brand new reference kit. Yeah, she can use. And he said, I already tuned up. So, all right. So I used. I mean, I got that like right. I mean, literally like, you know, an hour before we were supposed to play, and I was like looking around, and <laughs> you know, it was just it was a misunderstanding. I mean, you know, you know, like I told you the other day, it's like when somebody says, "What's your favorite drums to play?" and I always say the the ones that I don't have to set up, the ones that <laughs> I don't. Have to play. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I've been with Yamaha for like twelve, thirteen years, and you know, they're, they're awesome. But I mean, it's a uh, but it was just a mistake, you know. They somebody dropped the ball and forgot to give it SIR or something. I don't know. But but I'm looking around like, okay, I see Steve Gadd's kit, I see Steve Jordan's kit, I see uh, this guy's kit. Uh, he's, oh, what? I was like, I asked the production guy, I said, did, did Yamaha or SIR drop anything for the, you know? No, man. And then the, luckily the pro guy was just kind of overhearing it, and he was just happened to be there. He's like, "Hey, I bet." I got this reference kit. I said, well, yep, all right. <laughs> Let's do it. Rock and roll. You talked a bit about uh, after uh, Katrina and uh, just the changes that were going on uh, with you and coming to Nashville, and that, that has turned into a great thing. And I know you've moved back. Um, but how do you see the future of New Orleans with, climate change and flooding and all these other things what's your what's your thoughts on that yeah it's you know man every year you have to worry about hurricane season you know it's like mm-hmm. every time that, that that 
August, like July, August, especially August, man. When you know August is a touring month, so it's like, boy, I just cringe, man. It's like, oh, it's a tropical storm in the Gulf, and I'm like, oh God, I hope I can make my flight out of here. And mm-hmm. you know, luckily, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, and and it, it's you know, man, it, it's funny because um, in anywhere in the states with with go what's going, whether people believe in global warming or not, man, it's, it, it's stuff's changing, you know, whether they yeah. believe it or not, but it's, sure. it's totally changing. Cause you hear, you see what goes on in New Orleans and then look, look what happened in Nashville, man. You know, I was like, I'm, I remember I drove to Nashville during that flood and I was working on music road for, with somebody's record. And they were, I was staying at this place called extended stay. And it was kind of by Brawley park. I couldn't even get to the hotel yeah, because the hotel had like had four feet of water so just just to go to show you, who would ever thought Nashville would flood? You know, it's like 2010. Yep. Yeah, 2010, and it's like, and, and I was like, I was there for that right at that same when all that. So I, I remember I couldn't get to my hotel. Luckily, I didn't check in because I would have never got to be able to get to my clothes or whatnot. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's um as far as the future, man. It's like you know, man, New Orleans is it's one of the coolest I, I, I won't say the greatest city in the world but I'm, it's definitely one of the coolest cities in the world but you know man there's a lot of you got to worry about hurricane season you got to worry about flooding because we're under sea level and it's like the drainage the, the sewage and waterboard system here is terrible mm. they just you know it's just always a bad rainstorm can put you know three feet of flooding here but you're a spot down the street will be you know no no flooding so it's like it's um I know I'm blabbing on about this, but yeah, it's just no, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that goes on with the the way people play here because there's you gotta worry about that and there's a crime problem here. I mean, you know, it's like you gotta you know, you gotta have you gotta have a swivel head here. You gotta watch you gotta have eyes behind your back. Because mm. I remember um but it's like, you know, it's kinda of part of the, the slinkiness of the and you know, who knows what the um you know, every, every but every year you have to worry about you know, is there going to be a hurricane this year? Is there going to be, you know, luckily we hadn't had anything bad since Katrina, but, mm-hmm. and, you know, let's hope the, the water system, the sewage and water board is doing their job or whatnot. Yeah, but for sure. Just to go show you, man, any, no matter where you live, you know, something can happen, whether it be a, yeah. you know, Nashville had that flood, you know, I remember, I remember living in Nashville and, 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 you know, tornadoes would happen man i remember this tornado hit uh like ashland city i think it was and it tore through that town and i just moved there you know i know what it's like to to see debris and rubble and from houses let let me go see if they need help you know and i I just i went over there and i saw red crosses there and it was it was a disaster man it's like and i was kind of helping people clean up and it was like look man you know kind of trying to comfort People that live there saying, "Look, man, you know, you know, I've seen this a few months ago with a hurricane. It's like, you know, all you gotta do is start from day one, start now, and just rebuild, and you're alive, and move on. You know, you do the best. Yeah, you move can. on. That's all you can. Yeah, because I mean, with the damage is done, it's time to to be strong and just move on. You know. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And one of the last things I want to talk about is um, a solo record that you have. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what year was it? 2013 or uh, two, 2012? It came out. Okay, yeah. okay. It's called Magazine yeah. Street. Yep. And um, you yeah. worked with, and I know you work a lot with uh, Shane Terrio. 
Uh-huh. Uh, is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah, Terrio. Mm-hmm. Terrio. Um, when I first started this podcast, uh, a good friend of mine uh, said, hey, you've got to check this podcast out, Riff Raff. Um, and yeah. that's Shane's podcast, and it's super cool. Um, yep. I uh, I found your solo record. I've been listening to it this week, man. It's it's great. Uh, all the things that you're talking about, as far as the influence that you grew up with uh, from Nashville drumming uh, studio drummers that your dad exposed you to to the Nashville and uh, the New Orleans influence. I hear it. I hear it in the playing, um, and it's it's a joy to to listen to. Oh, and I I just I hear definitely why uh, there's all these different types of people and genres that are are looking to get that sound. Um, are you interested? In, are you planning on doing any more? Or what's what's what was the motivation behind putting out a solo record? Um. After putting, you know, just playing on so many other people's records, and then mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I just, I just felt like at that time, you know, I had something to say somewhat, and it's like, mm-hmm. uh, so I mean, yeah, yeah, some of the guys on the record are, you know, live in Nashville, like Johnny Neal, he's a B three player. I mean, he was the perfect guy to play on it, and John Cleary played on it, who I was touring with, and um, at that time, and. You know, of course, Shane and Calvin Turner, who's a bass player that lived in Nashville. And, um, so I, I used like some Nashville guys and some mostly New Orleans guys and some New York guys, and and I also used this guy, uh, O'Till Burbridge, a bass player who I've toured with. Mm-hmm. You know, played in his band and also um, different projects, and and Mike Gordon from Fish, and uh, right. just you know, just different, just different. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like. I, it's kind of what my personality was, you know, and is like, I'm such a scatterbrain, man. Cause I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to some, like some Vinnie Colleuna stuff one day and just like really get into it. And then the next day I'll be listening to like Jim Keltner mm-hmm. playing with Ry Cooter and, and going, man, how does he, how does he place that snare drum like that? How does he feel? And then I'll go listen to like Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer playing on some sixties record. And, and of course, you know, like I'll pull out some, I'll just like go listen to um, Greg Morrow, you know, like yeah. some national guy just play like it's something. Man, Greg Morrow, man, what a pocket! Like he him is, and Shannon Forrest, yeah. It's it's um, I'll just go listen to the way those guys play, man, and just like really analyze it, and um, and and then you know, of course, just listen to, like Alvin Jones for one day or something. You know, it's like it, it's always different. Yeah, like um. You know, and like people, people like younger guys coming out of college here, man. They, they would ask me like for lessons. I don't, I don't, I'll teach if you really beg me or something. Like I just, I'm not. I just, I hate teaching because I, first of all, I just feel like I'm not good enough to teach. But jeez, oh, man. But it's just, I, I just, I love when these kids are are interested, and I, and I'll make them listen to, you know, Eddie Bears play this track, and I'll make them listen to. To Shannon Forrest, you know, I'm like, listen to this guy, man. Listen to the way he's placing the beat. Listen to how he's playing the song. He, yeah, you know, and like, oh man, is, is, is he play? Does he play this or is he? And it's like, man, just listen to this, man. Just listen to how he's his sound. You know, you, you know, you know, like, it's crazy because you know this guy named Tom Bukovac in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a guitar player. Yeah, I'll never forget. He gave me the best advice once. He goes, man, you know what makes a good 
studio drummer besides time and feel. And you know, we were just like having some beers one night at his house and just, he was just telling me, he goes, man, drum sounds, man. Drum sounds is so important. Snare drum sound, man. Mm-hmm. And it's true. It's like, you listen to like Shannon or, or, or Greg or Chad, you know, or Paul or anybody, any, any guy, you know, everybody in Nashville is good. And he's jazz. And I'm showing you the same way. You know, it's like, that snare sound, man. It's like, you know, Tom would always, he would, he, he hit me to like, when I first got, he's like, you hear this, man, the slow tune. You know, man, you gotta use a, use a, you gotta have a low pitch snare, man. Look like really down, like, like, you know, and this mm-hmm. tune, you know, you wanna turn it up, you know, like, and then like, it just made so much sense. It made, it made so much sense. And then like, yeah. I would go watch Shannon or, or, or somebody in the studio and, and, you know, they would, um, they would be changing out snares. You know, that's, that's, that's a, it's a really cool thing, man. So, you know, yeah. it's a simple thing, but it's, right. but it's just a, it's very logical. And, and, uh, I would make guys here that, 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 that came out of school studying jazz and have no idea of what a pocket is or whatnot, you know, like, or they, they just, they just never did anything besides jazz and mm-hmm. funk music. You know, most of the music here in New Orleans is either funk, R&B, or, or, or straight ahead jazz, you know. Uh, traditional type jazz tune, so I would make I would I almost make them uncomfortable and make them listen to what a Nashville drummer would do, mm. you know, or listen to Jim Keltner. It's like, mm-hmm. and, you know, because a lot of them love Brian Blade, but they don't realize that Brian Blade, when he was working with Daniel Lenoir, was, you know, they, they just Brian Blade was totally into John Bonham and yeah, and, and a lot of rock drummers before he even got into Elvin. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and so. I'm like, really? Yeah. That's what he told me. And you can hear it in his playing with Emily Harris or whoever he's playing with. Like, yeah. listen to it. You, you hear that guy play, you wouldn't think he knew how to, you know, play a jazz gig. But, man, he can he can veer off and sound. I mean, that guy right there is, God blessed him with, uh, with some of the most amazing soulful music and drumming, you know? I'm sure you've seen him play. Yeah, well, uh, the, uh, Daniel Lenoir's group Black Dub is uh, yeah, yeah. is awesome, and that's Brian on there, and that's um, really great stuff. It, it's interesting that you say, you know, about, about tuning. I, I think oftentimes uh, I prepare for a session or I hear something coming up and, you know, it, and oftentimes I'm thinking, oh man, am I going to be able to play with this? Depending on the, the groove, the tempos, all this other things. And then you get to the session and you realize it's not as complicated or the part that you're playing is not as complicated as maybe you have, you had anticipated. Um, right. But it really does come down to moving air in the best way possible for the track and getting a sound that is really great for the song. Um, and some of the busiest session players here in Nashville have really great sounds. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and, and kind of being hip to what sounds are popular uh, in, currently. So, right, right. you know, in this... And snare tone is so much a big part of that. It's almost like the tip of the spear as far as what is trending. Um, and I think it's important to know that if you want to work. The uh, uh-huh. the, the other thing I, I, I love, uh, you uh, you reminded me of when we were talking about your solo record. 
there's kind of a joke where you're on a session, you're doing something, you're uh, playing, you know, playing a lot of stuff, and somebody's like, "Man, yeah, you sound really great. Have you ever thought about doing a solo record?" And you're like, "Yeah, actually, I have. Yeah, we'll save that shit for your solo record." <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're uh-huh. overplaying. Um, yep. But yeah, man, I, I, it 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 sounds like you're you're really you're kind of straddling both worlds. Uh, I'm, in trying, a really yeah, great, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying. It's that one side of my brain. I mean, I still go to Nashville and work, and I, I you know, believe it or not, I still toy with the idea of moving back there full time. And mm-hmm. and it's uh, but it's it's um. You know, man, it's just uh, I, I it, I'm just so is, know, it, is it a lot? Every girlfriend I've ever had told me I got bored with everything, and I do. It's like <laughs> I, I just I'm like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, no, I want to do this, no, I want to do that, no, I'm gonna do, but I'm gonna do this and that, no, and it's like I got so much in my head going on, and it's like I'm always preparing ten years ahead, man. It's like it's it doesn't make any sense, and it's like um, you know. So I'm wondering, like, yeah. if 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 it's a left brain, right brain thing, you know. I know right brain is the creative side, I believe. So maybe maybe that's New Orleans, and the left brain is the more you know uh, stricter, you know, organized side. Maybe Could that's, be. That's I, know, I love them both. I love them equal. You know, I, you, you got to have both. I mean, people, are like, you got to man. It's like it's, it's weird because I I I. Um, there's there's an art to what like a guy like Shannon Forrest would do as much as an art as what Johnny Vodakovich does, and those guys are yeah. far apart as the sun to Pluto. You know, it's like yeah. Earth to Pluto. I mean, they're so far apart they don't even know each other. But the, each of those guys and what they do, yeah. And that's what I want to do. I want to do each of those guys mm-hmm. with equal skill, and that's that's I can't just do one thing. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's it's weird, man. It's like because it's like. That's what I try to tell when when, when a, a young guy comes, takes a lesson with me. I'm like, man, and, and I, I try to preach. So I was like, man, it's like, you want to know what I do? This is what I, this is what I, you know, because so one guy goes, man, what do you study? I was like, well, when I'm not studying out of Kim Plainfield's book, I'll I'll go listen to a track. You know, I'll, I'll just search allmusic.com and go to like search, um, uh, you know, any drummer from like John Gardner. You know, I don't know if mm-hmm. you know John Gardner. I do know, yeah. Yeah. I, I would I would go like, man. He did this this shuffle once, man. It was a uh, jukebox Charlie. That song jukebox Charlie with uh, Lloyd Green, the steel guitar player. It's some kind of indie record that somebody did with you know Lloyd Green, and it was jukebox Charlie, and it was one of the most baddest country shuffles ever heard. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and, and I, I you know I'll, I'll I'll take that track and go hey play to that go just you know yeah go go play that yeah. learn that you know yeah yeah but what about art blakey shove or, or jeff picard yeah those, those are great too but check this guy out this is another guy that's a master of a shuffle too mm-hmm. but that that doesn't get the same you know go see how that feels you know it's like right. it's um you'd be surprised how many people come out of college and can't play a shuffle or 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 do a a big band gig or you know just just a play a Cajun groove, you know, it's like like a two step or a train beat, man. I mean, you know, like I, I'll be honest with you, man. Like what what a drummer from Nashville would come down here and look at a New Orleans music and probably wouldn't have the slightest clue. Yeah. It's the same thing with a New Orleans drummer going to Nashville and put mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. like here, here's a pair of blastics. I'll, I'll 
play a bluegrass, you know, mm-hmm. uh, train beat. Yeah. Man, they're going to they gonna be lost as a goose. I mean, I'll well, probably get you know, slaughtered for saying that, but no, I, a lot of guys down here can't do a train beat. You know, it's like... I think I think the takeaway though is that it, it's important to not write off other genres and and other things because maybe it's not your your thing. Uh, I think there's something to, to there's something subtle and there's something about every style of music that I right. think uh, I mean and, and country music is a great one to throw under the bus because it's been made fun of for years. Um, there's a great, there's a clip of Buddy Rich making fun of it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's an easy target for so many reasons, but you know, man, I, I know I didn't play any country until I moved down here 16 years ago and there's shuffles and there's train beats and there's stuff in country music that kicks my ass on a daily, weekly basis. And, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you play, man. It's still got a swing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, I, I, and, and being respectful of those genres uh, is something that you've done and you're able to, you know, like, again, like we said, bridge those two gaps and, and, and make a living, make a living working with the best, the Muhammad Ali's of their instrument. So hats off to you, man. <laughs> oh man, you know you know who also helped me out in Nashville. Believe it or not, was uh, Michael Rhodes, the bass yep. player. Are you familiar with him? I, you yeah, know, it's one day I was yeah. hanging out with. Um, we were at Third and Lindsley, and I just moved to town. Okay, I got the gig with Jerry, and I and I was I was with this bass player named Mike Wolofsky. I don't know if you know him. He's he's one of my really really good friends, mm-hmm. and uh. He's a bass player in Nashville, and me, him, and Guthrie Trap were hanging out watching the players. Yep, the players. And we're watching that, and and I said, "Man, I'm gonna go up to Michael Rose and I want to play with that guy." And then Mike Wolofsky, the friend, goes, "Man, he ain't gonna want to play with you, dude. He's, he's the biggest guy in town. What are you talking about?" I was like, "I don't care. I'm gonna give him right. my card and tell him." Sure. So I, after the gig, and I mean, of course, we all, you know, getting we're drinking and stuff, and but I wasn't like drunk, drunk or anything. But I went up to Mike. Michael Rhodes after I said, Hey man, how you doing? He goes, Hey, he just looks at me and goes, I said, Hey, look, I'm a drummer from New Orleans. I play with Jerry Douglas. And I said, you know, I said, I think we need to play together. I'm going to give you my card. Yeah. So he just kind of, he takes my card and he looks at me and he looks at me and looks at the back of the card. And he just stares at me. He goes, okay. Okay. And I said, no, I'm serious, man. I said, you and I need to play together. I said, I'm serious. He goes, all right. So believe it or not, I, this guy never even heard me. He never even heard me. It's yeah. like, this is, I just, he never even heard me. And then next thing you know, I get a call from, uh, Pat McLaughlin, the song, songwriter guy. Yeah. And, and he, he calls me and goes, yeah, man, calling you about doing this gig with me. Um, yeah. Michael Rhodes told me to call you. <laughs> <laughs> He's never even heard. He never even heard me. man. Like, yeah. So we go there, and then that was like the start of me and Mike, and then I, that's how I got with Larry Carlton, and yeah, and that's who uh, who that's who started me working uh, as well in the session scene when when I was not on the road was Michael. It, it just so it just goes to show you that networking is very important. Oh, and being yeah. confident, but not not cocky, but confident. But well, and Michael, you know, I, I, for I, those I, that don't know, Michael's like the I mean, is for bass players like Eddie Bears. 
you know, to drummers right, right. Uh, in in the Nashville music scene. And I mean, he's done so much, but I mean, he's been on countless records and countless number one hits. Oh, yeah. He is, you oh, know, geez. definitely one of the busiest bass players or has been over many decades. For oh, sure. He's, he's, and he can make a drummer, any drummer sound good, man. I mean, like he just, he helped me out with like, you know, playing in the studio, like playing simple and, and uh, embellishing on it when it's time to embellish on it. Mm-hmm. And, awesome. um, you know, man, he was, he was, and he was, he's such a, he was such a, not like, a, like like an old, not like kind of like a father figure to me in Nashville when, I, when we started playing together. And he was, um, you know, he'd always call and just check in on me and make sure I was okay. And he was like, you know, like it was, it was Thanksgiving time. He'd be like, hey, man, you know, you going home? I said, no, I'm going to stay in town for, he goes, well, you know, the door's open, man. If you need to come or if you ever need, you know, you need anything, man. You know, he was really, really supportive. And all that happened. And I asked him one day, I said, man, I, I, I was, I had a lot of balls just going up to you and ask you that. Why would you even, he goes. I just knew. He goes. I, I. I can tell. I can tell that. Okay, this guy. You know, really means it. And, and, I, and it's all from like just networking, man. Because if you don't, if you don't network and, and if you don't network and, and really go for what you're trying to, you know, if you want to get to to here, you have to go through A and B to get to C. Yeah. You know, and and basically that's you know it's like it's you know. The, this networking is so important, especially in a town like Nashville. And the best guy is, is Rich Redmond. I don't know if you know him, but oh yeah, <laughs> you know Rich. <laughs> yeah. Rich is man. I, I liked him the second I met him when I yeah. first got there because yeah. he's like, hey, how you doing? He's like, give me a card. Let's, you know, yeah. And you know, it's like, but he he he. I look at that guy, man. I'm like, man, he's just like a walking. He's a walking business card, but he's so full of positive energy, man. Yeah. And it's like. He's a great. I see that guy, and every time I see him, even if I was in a bad mood and I saw him, I would I would start smiling because because he always had a smile on his face, and he was always like, and and it's so he's he he and guys like him and Stan Moore are basically the same thing, but like, um, you know, Stan's a New Orleans drummer, he's a Nashville drummer, but it's like they they both remind me of these things, like. I love that you know, kind of thing. Rich is a great, he's a, just the epitome of, of that, and he's a great example of that. And and it, and what you see is what you get. Um, he's he's tried and true. I mean, just he is the real deal when it comes to that. He's just a great example. Oh, and he's yeah, a great, sure. he's a great drummer, great, yeah, great, you know, great drummer. guy. Oh, for sure. and, yeah, and I just love the positive. Like mm-hmm. you know, when he does these videos, and you know, he's just always like if um, you know whatever it is for an, a company he's endorsing or. Or just trying to, he's always that kind of person to try to help out, you know, some, and which is crazy because I'll never forget how, you know, Nashville is a small town, but it's still a big town because Shannon Forrest came to New Orleans to play with Toto and we were hanging out that day. And then, and then Shannon said, Hey, come tonight. So he put me on a guest list and I go, I show up at the, the thing and I see Rich Redmond. He's just happened to be hanging out in New Orleans. And, and I said, Hey man, you here to see Shannon too? He goes, he goes, actually, I've never met the guy. It's never hung with him. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> and it, it just goes to show you, like, those, you know, he's probably been in Nashville 25 plus years. And, yeah. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, it's like, you know, it's Crazy. like all these musicians that, you know, it's such you, a, you yeah. never meet or... It, it is. It is crazy. It is crazy. I, I have not met Shannon either, um, but I've known Rich since the day I moved yeah. here. You know, it's been amazing. Um, Doug, thank you, man, for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. 
Hey, thank you, and I, I appreciate it. And keep in touch. All right, I will. You too. See you, man. <laughs> Take care, man. Bye-bye. See you later. Again, many thanks to producer Jim Riley for connecting me with Doug. And thanks to Doug for taking the time to speak with us. I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper to uh, the history of New Orleans, but uh, the conversation didn't go uh, the way I I thought it would with that. But uh, I think uh, spending a little time to talk about the documentary, the upcoming documentary about New Orleans drumming, uh, will will get us there and and get me there as far as uh, just learning more about this super important part of our uh, history and this genre that's been uh, so important to the development of uh, American and Western music. A couple other working drummer podcasts to check out with drummers from New Orleans, uh, episode 141 with Gerald French, episode 113 with Jamal Watson that my host Zach Albetta has produced that are worth checking out. So once again, uh, stay tuned next week for Zach's uh, interview, and many thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. I wanted to take a minute and tell you a bit about one of our Patreon members, James Osborne, who's from Melbourne, Australia. James started playing in 1982 and mostly plays jazz. He says he's just an average working guy. Uh, He's come off a year sabbatical to re-engineer the technical aspects of his playing after a stroke messed up his right hand a bit. Uh, But he is ready to start playing and recording again. I wanted to also direct you to James's uh, website, jamesosborne.com, james, O-S-B-O-R-N-E.com.au, jamesosborne.com.au. James is uh, also not only a wonderful drummer, as you can tell by the music tracks, click on that, listen to his playing, Great touch, great feel. Uh, it's just a joy to listen to uh, one of his groups, the Jazz Collective, which is a quintet. And there's also uh, some recordings from a trio, a piano trio that he's in that's worth checking out. He's also a photographer with a, a super keen eye. And it was just a joy to go through the pictures uh, that he has on there. So definitely a creative soul uh, that's worth looking into. So jamesosborne.com.au. One of our listeners from Australia, and we really appreciate him and uh, the support that he's been giving the podcast. Thanks to everyone so far that has purchased a Working Drummer Podcast shirt. We are selling those for only $10, so uh, check those out on workingdrummer.net. You can find the shirts, and we have all the sizes. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.